Are you looking to become a leader in clean energy and an expert in clean tech? Do you hope to get noticed in the crowd as you pursue a career in this fastly growing industry? You are in the right place. Join Karan Takar as he invites clean energy leaders to share industry developments, highlight clean tech investment opportunities, and shed light on how you can increase your chances of employment in this high-growth sector. We will also discuss the energy transition across key emerging markets like India and explore partnership opportunities for the U.S. private and public sector. After all, this is the Zenergy Podcast. Thank you, Dr. Aaron, for taking the time. I've been really looking forward to speaking with you. And it's great to connect with you at the Global Clean Energy Action Forum. And I'm really jealous that you're in Hawaii right now. Just to provide some context for listeners who may be unfamiliar with your work and also what the National Renewable Energy Laboratory is, can you provide a brief introduction of NREL and what your role is at the organization? Sure. NREL, the National Renewable Energy Lab, is a national lab of the Department of Energy. It was started in the mid-70s as the Solar Energy Research Institute during the first oil crisis and was elevated to a national lab in 1991. We're the only lab in the United States and for many years, uh, decades, uh, the only one in the world that has focused on energy efficiency and renewable energy. Today, we are 3,000 plus strong and located in Golden, Colorado with a main campus there and then a satellite campus uh, up near Boulder called the Flatirons Campus. And our research focuses on innovating in that those spaces. So think of energy efficiency, smart buildings, energy efficient mobility. Classically, you can think of the renewable generation technologies like wind, solar, geothermal, but also marine, hydro, biofuels. And increasingly, over the last numbers of years, we have focused on other technologies and system integration. So this includes a significant amount of work in cybersecurity and resiliency and energy systems integration includes a a lot in carbon utilization. So what does that mean? That means kind of using carbon molecules that are either captured from a a CO2 stream or maybe come from biomass and using them into high value products and chemicals across that whole board. And uh, we're super excited about what we do. Great young workforce. We work in 40 countries around the world and are motivated to get up and, and go to work every day because uh, we love what we do and we're there to help, as our director would say, save the planet. Amazing. And so, Dr. Aaron, could you provide some insight into what your role is at NREL as well as what your day-to-day looks like for you know young listeners who might be interested in joining NREL and curious about like what a senior leadership role would look like. Yeah, maybe a more interesting piece would be the journey of my roles at NREL, if you wouldn't mind a little diversion. I actually started at NREL as a a summer graduate student back in the 
the mid eighties, when I was doing my PhD, there was a researcher at NREL who was in the same field as what I was studying for my PhD. And he's now an emeritus fellow named Art Nozick. And I came in as a summer student and then I returned to Princeton to finish my PhD, went to Europe for a couple of postdocs and returned to NREL then as uh, Art Nozick's uh, postdoc. And started as a postdoc and converted to uh, a researcher, a full-time researcher. And then I added an MBA because I wanted to get into more economics, policy, and analysis work. And that took me to Washington, D.C. I was on assignment, much like you were, to the Department of Energy for a couple of years. It was a an advisor to uh, a senior advisor of the Secretary of Energy at that point in time and traveled to South Africa and India and all sorts of uh, interesting countries in advance of trips that she would take. And that was Hazel O'Leary, the she there refers to. I came back to NREL and I became more of a senior researcher and then eventually evolved into leading the Strategic Analysis Center. and. I uh, did that with one hat or another for almost 20 years, built about a 300-person staff doing energy analysis, life cycle assessment, grid modeling, et cetera, uh, a lot of techno-economic analysis. Did that for about 20 years and then most recently became the um, executive director of strategic public-private partnerships. And in that role, I have this great opportunity to work with creative teams in the laboratory on topical areas that we feel are really important. So uh, a couple examples of those are one is called accelerating clean energy at scale, which really means bringing our analytic capabilities to communities around the country and countries around the world to help translate the ambitions that most everyone has set out now uh, into really implementation plans. And that we do through really rigorous engineering informed or engineering based energy models. And they are able to kind of map out a set of no regrets decisions for the next 10 or 20 years while they look at achieving the long term decarbonization or clean energy goals of different places. That's one example. The other one is a, a great example of working with a team on sustainable aviation ecosystems. And here, the word ecosystem is really important because as we think about how aviation will evolve in the United States in particular, uh, there's, of course, the long haul aircraft that we all sit on when we travel back and forth from you know, school to home or home to vacation. And that's going to need sustainable aviation fuels. And, and we do a lot of work in that space as well. But if you're in a smaller town, uh, you might fly on a small aircraft or into a small airport. And those what are called short or medium haul airplanes with smaller passenger loads are very much looking for an electrified future. And so it's very possible that those small aircraft for shorter distances will be electrified in a not too distant future. And that means that airports have to provide charging capabilities. And of course, the grid has to be clean to provide clean electrons for that. So we're looking across that whole space about how do we help support decarbonizing the whole ecosystem, including, of course, the airport operations as well. 
So that's a couple examples of what I do. And it, it's working with the Department of Energy and it's working with other government agencies and it's working with lots of companies. That's incredible. Thank you for shedding insight into your career trajectory, as well as some of the important work that you're doing today. And I have two follow-up questions. I'm attacking both of those different thematic areas. So in terms of when NREL and your team is building out and developing these implementation plans to help communities and also countries around the world transition their economies to more decarbonized systems, can you provide insight into one, how receptive like these communities and countries generally are? If we could focus on countries in this case, um, I think that would be intriguing. And two, like, does NREL work actively with the counterparts in terms of developing plans that are specific to that locality? Um, just to get a sense of how integrated the work is when these plans are being developed. It's an insightful set of questions, and they're very tightly coupled. So every engagement, whether or not it's at a local community level or at a national level, starts with engaging with stakeholders and having a whole series of dialogues about what are their goals, what are their questions. Uh, of course, what is their energy system, be that electric or broader economy-wide energy system, uh, look like today? And what are their resources and interests and goals for transforming that toward, classically, the concerns are stabilization, and job creation, economic prosperity, resiliency and reliability, particularly of the power system, but of, of the whole energy system, and of course, affordability. So, for example, in India, uh, a number of years ago, we worked on a program called Greening the Grid, which was the first national goal that the government had set out for integrating 175 gigawatts of renewable electricity. And in that, a colleague of ours spent six months in India working with the stakeholders, creating a technical kind of advisory committee collecting data that would be needed for doing the engineering economic modeling. And in that process, gain the support of and the real interest from a very broad group of stakeholders who at that point in time had lots of questions, but didn't really know the methods or the answers. And through that process, were incredibly confident of then the results of the study because they were intimate with the methods and the data and the conversations that had gone into it. And the study was promoted and released by the Ministry of Power and embraced by POSICO, which is kind of the, the national grid operating company and other key stakeholders within the national government. And they have now taken that and said, oh, well, we know how to integrate that much and we have greater ambitions. So they now have a, a goal of 450, 500 gigawatts of, of next level of, of ambition. And they are both running the models themselves, but also engaging with ourselves and others in terms of improving their methods and, and their approach and solution set, shall we call it, in terms of what do they do to, to be able to achieve that goal. Understood. That's very insightful. Appreciate you providing a detailed breakdown on a specific project. Another question that comes to mind as it pertains to 
greening the grid or integration, which you previously touched upon earlier. So in one of my classes, a professor mentioned that currently roughly about 50% of electric bills stem from the generation costs, whereas the other 50% roughly stem from the transmission and distribution costs. However, my professor forecasts that this 50% dynamic is likely to shift over the next 20 or 30 years where transmission and distribution will slowly make up an increasing share of the electric bill. And as a result, integration and greening the grid likely will become an even more pressing issue. And would love to hear your thoughts on what you feel as some of the larger challenges and also like technologies that can help address those challenges as it pertains to lowering distribution and transmission costs over time, making that process more seamless, especially as more renewables get integrated. It's kind of a complicated subject. So your professor painted, I guess, one pathway and one potential outcome, which is I would call it the evolutionary pathway of a greening of a power grid, which is that the system eventually incorporates more and more variable renewables plus, you know, potentially storage, long-term storage, long-duration storage, uh, and elements like that, which have a capital cost, but no fuel cost. And so the overall operating cost for electricity generation actually decreases. And in an ideal situation, to be economically optimal, you would actually build out more transmission in order to tap, shall we call it, the low cost or the high potential generation sites, which might be far away from, let's say, a city where, where you're located. And that under that paradigm, transmission would increase, distribution would stay the same or potentially increase, and the generation cost would go down. But there are alternative paradigms and scenarios where, for example, in New York State, Richard Kaufman, when he was the head of the energy department there and the chair of NYSERDA, the State Energy Research and Development Agency, the state itself went down a pathway to initiate what was called the REV, the revolutionizing the energy future for New York City. And underneath that was a program very explicitly targeted on what's called non-wires alternatives. And what that means is to look spatially and temporally, of course, so at the right locations and for resources that produce power at the right time of day, how to bolster the greening of the grid throughout the network and avoid the need for greater wholesale generation and transmission. And under that particular paradigm, you actually might not see such a strong increase in transmission costs over time as well. And likewise, there's a lot of discussion as to whether or not a large build-out of a transmission grid is, should we call it a socially viable pathway? What that means is that it takes a really long time and a lot of money to put in a large transmission line and maybe too many years of process, too much regulatory 
challenge to be able to do that in the time that we need to build out the renewable energy resources to, to green the grid. And so there are alternatives where you you build out more distributed generation or more localized generation, and you actually don't invest in the in the transmission. So both paradigms are possible. So it's it's not just one, and I think it really depends on the situation in the location and or the country. Got it. That makes sense. I was recently reading the International Energy Agency's World Energy Outlook. Given that you've worked in the solar and renewable space for so many years. And I remember you mentioning when we met at the Global Clean Energy Action Forum, how in high school, you wrote a paper on solar technology. One, I just find that really fascinating as also someone who relatively entered this space at a young age. But two, love to hear your thoughts on from that time until now, and referencing this World Energy Outlook, which mentioned that for the first time ever, they predict fossil fuels to exhibit a peak or a plateau with coal use falling back in the next few years. For example, natural gas reaching a plateau by the end of the decade, oil demand ultimately leveling off in the mid-2030s. Another two-part question, would love to hear your perspective in terms of, you know, someone who's worked in a space for so long, does this you know, excite you? Are you surprised that we're where we are today and to what you feel the keys to enable this to actually play out in reality? It's a fascinating journey. Yeah, I I did mention that at the Global Clean Energy Action Forum that as a teenager, I was super excited about solar energy. And I I wrote a, a thesis paper in high school about the prospects of it. It's been an incredible journey for those 45 years and seeing that particular technology go from a very kind of science based niche markets of, of space to hundreds of gigawatts per year installed each year today and maybe on a trajectory to growing to a terawatt annually in the next uh, you know five to ten years that's pretty phenomenal but to the reflection on the on the IEA's report, you know, the scenario that you paint the picture of is the existing policies scenario toward net zero world. What that reflects is, in fact, a fairly what you might think of from a inside the fence conservative view of how the system will evolve toward this renewable or low carbon electrified future. The oil peaking, of course, comes because of the commitments to electric vehicles in combination, of course, with the green grids, which lowers the greenhouse gas footprint of the the light-duty vehicle fleet, and that's expanding into medium and heavy-duty fleets as well. So think of vans and trucks, and then the grids being going green around the world, which is pretty phenomenal. So I'm super excited. I will give a a little plug for a book that I'm writing called The Fourth Phase, which is kind of my reflections of of the renewable trajectory since I was a kid. You know, the first phase was essentially a, a science phase of scientists being excited about the potential clean energy future. The second phase was, I'll call it the very early niche markets and, and very limited policy support. The third phase is really what we've lived through the last 
15 or 20 years where policies have grown, technologies have expanded tremendously. And what we're seeing today and what the IEA reflects is that renewables are the least cost solution in nearly every country. And one of the critical foundational building blocks of decarbonizing our energy system on our planet. And going forward, it's really a renewable energy-based future. And there will be other technologies there that are low carbon as well. So I'm super excited about it. It's It's been a long journey for me, and it's a great future for those interested in this space. There's so much opportunity for creativity, continued innovation on the technical side, but also an incredible innovation space for business creativities, combining digitization, advanced communications and controls and renewable technologies, not just for power, but thinking about power combined into hydrogen and clean fuels and clean chemicals. It's really an open landscape to be super creative and, and use all the all the tools that are in the toolbox today, which are, are so numerous. And uh, I hope that you and, and all of the listeners are, are as excited as I was back when I was a teenager and take full advantage of the opportunity and the state of technology to make it real. Thank you so much, Dr. Aaron. Really appreciate you taking the time. I'm definitely going to read your book when it comes out, and I'm looking forward to that. And thank you again for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it. You have a great day. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Check out the episode description or show notes for more information on our guest. See you next time.